0: Thank you. Please be seated. Good morning. It's a beautiful day, and it's so good to be here. Let me get my notes in order so this sermon makes sense. Secret, it's not the first time I've preached this sermon, so I might be able to... It's very good to be here. Thank you for praying for my son. I appreciate that. Thanks, Joe. Um, we started a two-part series last week on, uh, on Jesus and boats. So we're going to go to a second story about Jesus and boats. This one's about a boat and a storm. If you go to the Gospel of Mark, to chapter 4, we'll begin at verse 33, kind of jump in at the end of the preceding section. If you're not familiar with... The way the Bible's organized, go to about two-thirds of the way in the Pew Bible. And the New Testament will be close there. It starts with four accounts of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be in Mark. That's on page 839 in the Pew Bible. We're going to take a look at Jesus and safety. If we're with Jesus, why do we still have storms in our lives? That's what we'll take a look at today, but let's pray first. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies. We ask you to instruct and teach us, to show us um, how we should live with you, who you are, who we are, and how we can trust and honor you. We pray in your good name, Jesus. Amen. I'll begin reading in verse, verse 433 and read to the end of chapter 4. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea. Peace, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Amen. So a number of years ago I was speaking to a spouse who had been deeply wounded by the unfaithfulness of the other. And I asked them in the pastor's study what they were going to do. This is a family that I knew very well. Well, she said, I'm going to forgive him and rebuild the relationship. Just as the gospel calls me to. Well, I saw sincerity in her words. I knew she meant them, and that's indeed what happened. But I also knew that she didn't understand what she had just said that she couldn't anticipate what was involved in that, despite the authentic, genuine, really courageous faith. So I looked at her and I said, that's a good Bible answer, but you're not going to make a decision this serious based just on the Bible, are you? She did not expect me to say that. And of course, I wanted her to make a decision that serious based on the Bible, but I wanted her to understand that the Bible's idea of our safety and our idea of our safety are two different things. Jesus will lead us into storms to teach us to trust him more than we fear the world. So we're going to take a look at this passage and we're going to see um, several things. First of all, we're going to see why disciples think that once they're with Jesus, they're set for life. Second thing we're going to see is how the world overwhelms us and Jesus underwhelms us. Then we're going to see three miracles. This sounds like a super long sermon. I don't think it is. But then we're going to see three miracles and take some life lessons for discipleship. So let's first of all take a look at what it's like to follow Christ and get it in your head that you're set for life, which of course you are, except that you're not. So let's take a look at this passage. That's why we began at the end of the preceding section, after Jesus taught these parables, because it gives us the first, the first confidence of the disciple that makes us think that we're going to be okay, that everything is going to be fine. And that's that we have um, special instructions. That's what's going on here. Jesus, uh, in this passage right before ours, told a bunch of his most famous parables. And we're told that he did nothing but speak in parables, which is hyperbolic, of course. But he spoke commonly in parables. And he spoke, as we're told in our passage, the way people could understand it. But then when he took his disciples aside, um, he explained everything. That, that means he kind of untied everything. He unloosed everything is the word. And he made it all clear. So you can get the picture now, right? You get the picture that Jesus um, has taken a group He's spoken to the world, but he's taken a group like this group here and he's taken them aside and he's given them sort of the teacher's addition to the textbook of life. And he's explained that to them. And in fact, we know from the rest of the scriptures that that our relationship to the word of God is one of the key distinctive elements of what it means to be a follower of Christ. It means you're in. It means you're part of what he's doing. Jesus, when he prayed to the Father on the night that he was arrested, he said, I know they're your disciples because I gave them your word and they received it. Right? Right? And that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. And once we get in that set, once uh, we, like all the disciples, have been taught everything that he commanded us from the Great Commission, right? we have our first sense of confidence that we're going to be okay. We're starting to understand how the world works. But um, there's another layer of that confidence given in this passage. All these three things are going to work um, If the disciples are anything like us, they're going to work to convince them that they are going to be just fine until they're not. The second part of it is that Jesus gave them this special instruction, a personal, specific, concrete, providential invitation to go to the other side of the lake. Now think about your life with Jesus. If Jesus told you to move to Nebraska, If he just looked at you and said, let's go to Nebraska, you would think, yes, talk about blessing. Jesus just told me to go to Nebraska. It's going to be good in Nebraska. So the disciples have the second layer of confidence. First, they're instructed. Secondly, they're guided. And in the mystery of the way God does lead and guide us, we... Um, build confidence that we're entering into a place that's safe, a season that's blessed. And this is an essential part of what it means to follow Christ. Paul was called, Moses was called. These are all famous Bible people. If you're not familiar, David, Jeremiah, Peter, of course, Mary. We all hear the voice. We follow Jesus and we go a deeper, more centric circle into safety with him. And then finally, the relationship is sealed. And here they go. Jesus gets into the boat. You can actually hear the language, the language that distinguishes them from the rest of those suckers who aren't with Jesus and don't get teaching and don't get all that stuff. They left the crowd in verse 36. Leaving the crowd, they, they took him with them in their boat just as he was. That's an odd phrase, isn't it? Just as he was. What in the world does that mean? Well, we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but we can only make guesses. It's the only time I know of where that phrase is used in the gospel. But, but first of all, I want you to see how safe they appear to be, and if they're like us, probably assume they were. They have been instructed with special instruction. They have been given specific guidance that they followed, and now what are they doing? They're in a boat with the Son of God, right? Right? And they just left everyone else. So now they're in the inner circle. Now they know what's going on. Now they're right with him. They're there in a boat with him, with Jesus. And they should be just okay. Now, it's hard to figure out, and not a lot of folks write about that whole thing just as he was, but I want us to think of it this way. Just as they thought he was. Um, Just as they understood him. This passage is filled with a couple echoes. Jesus instructs people as they're able to hear. And that's echoed later on. They took him just as he was. There's a, a sense of degree and proportion of understanding. And my guess is that they took Jesus, just like Rachel took her idols, as a talisman, as a security blanket, as someone who would keep them from what exactly was just about to happen, so when we went to uh, from Indiana, we planted church in Indiana, my wife and I, and then we came out to the Northwest to Seattle in 1995. <laughs> and when we were looking for a new call and we were praying about these things, we we chose Psalm 121 as the verse that we would hold on to. And Psalm 121 says, "Look to the hills, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. He who watches over Israel will not slumber or sleep." He will not let your foot slip. That was, that's a great, like if you're looking for a job, that's great, right? That's a great verse. So we had that verse. We prayed that verse pretty much every day. We came to Seattle uh, and uh, we had a couple of days, you know, the thing where the candidating trip, it's really intense. And I was walking out of the church um, <laughs> right after preaching there, still had several days of work to do. And I was talking to someone about an event and I turned around and and I was walking backwards, which is never a good idea. And uh, I stepped off a a broken city sidewalk and just laid my ankle to waste. I immediately fell down in excruciating pain. Within 20 minutes, it was swollen. Within a couple hours, it was purple. Now, do you remember the verse that we had been praying for six months? Remember the verse? He, he will not let your foot do what? Slip. So I am so dense, like I said, I would take the job anyway. It's like, I, don't, like I, didn't, I just said, okay, perfect. It must be for me. But we found the irony significant. And, um, you know, it's not the last time I stumbled. Not, not in the way we classically fear pastors will, but it's not the last time I got hurt at that church, I assure you. So here we are, we're set for life, everything's perfect, and we have some fundamental misunderstandings about discipleship. You know, some famous verses call God a uh, refuge and a shelter. And we emphasize the fact that he's our refuge and our shelter, right? But let me ask you this, why do you need a fort? Have you ever thought about why you need a fort? You need a fort because you live in a dangerous world. Do you ever think about Why God never told Adam and Eve that there was a serpent? That's one of my questions when I get to heaven. Why no heads up about the serpent? You know, we live in a dangerous place. And if you're exploring Christianity, being a Christian doesn't make you immune from it. In fact, what Jesus is about to do is to create an environment. What he started already is create an environment that completely overwhelms them and then underwhelms them with him. So what happens to this um, great overwhelming storm? Let's take a look now. A great windstorm, a megastorm, that's the word actually that's used and it's gonna be it's gonna be a significant word in a little bit. A megastorm overwhelms them. Now these are fishermen who make their living on the sea. So they're not easily daunted by a a storm. They don't get overwhelmed easily by waves and rain and wind. But this great megastorm that sweeps down into the Sea of Galilee from the hills and can come up rather quickly, this one overwhelmed them. They were soon beyond their capacity. And the, and the boats, these boats are probably about 25 feet long, the boats starting to take in water they have, you must imagine, done all the seafaring things that seafarers do that I can't describe because I'm not one of them, but you can go Google it later. They did all that stuff. They know how to batten down hatches and whatever, whatever else needs to be done in that setting. They know what to do with the sails. They know how to stabilize the boat. They know all these things. And certainly they have engaged all these things, just like we saw last week. The the narrative of the Bible compresses these stories because that's part of its art. But understand that this storm and this um, crisis was elongated and they certainly engaged all of their experience and skills as sailors before they lost it. But they do lose it, don't they? Because they're overwhelmed. They they came to a situation that was beyond their capacity. That's the definition of a crisis. You enter into crisis economically or relationally or with your children or your health or vocationally when you are in circumstances that you cannot control or, more appropriately, that you cannot convince yourself that you can control. And so at the end of that, At the end of your gifts and your skills, that's when you, if you're like me and you're like them, probably start to wonder, well, hold on a second. Why am I overwhelmed? Why has God let this happen? Why, O Lord, are you so far from me? How long, O Lord, till you answer me? What is up with this? I have studied your word. I have followed your guidance. I have been with you in every way and everywhere I know how. And where are you? Well, in this case, the answer is asleep in the stern of the boat while everyone else is afraid they're going to die. So while they're overwhelmed with their circumstances, while they're overwhelmed with the storm, while while this megastorm becomes too great for them, while they're overwhelmed with the world that they're in, they're underwhelmed with the Savior that they're following. And there's where many of us live, if not now, you have or will, I imagine, soon. You have Christ, who's um, asleep in a boat. So, what's up with um, what's up with that? What's well, maddening, first of all, it's impossible. Secondly, and it's dangerous. You know, in other words, everything that you imagine about God or about his son is negated in his sleeping, in your crisis, in his non-answer to your worries and your fears. He's challenging what you think it's going to be like, what you assume he'll do when he's in your life. And Jesus simply won't answer. The sleeping Christ is careless. The sleeping Christ is a failing Christ. The sleeping Christ is a confusing Christ. And so there you have it. When you're overwhelmed with your circumstances, you often or can be underwhelmed with your Savior, who's not doing what you need him to do. And so they they break out. What? You know, there's no indication that they tried to wake him up a nice way. You know, earlier. You know, there's no indication about that. They just bust into this little area, which would have been in the stern. There would have been a cushion under it. Remember, this boat's tossing. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And they just yell at him. You don't care. I've I've actually prayed that prayer. Have you ever prayed that prayer? You don't care. You don't care about my children. You don't care about my money. You don't care about my health. You don't care about my relationships. You just don't care. Well, actually, that's a place where God can work very profoundly and deeply in you to change the way you see him, yourself, and what you expect him to do in your circumstances. You ever noticed, if you have little children, that when you called your pediatrician, at night, like late. He never said it was okay or she never said it was okay that you called till, till they found out why you called. Did you ever notice that? They never say, oh, don't worry about it. They always say, what's going on? And then if it's a good call, they'll say, oh, don't worry about calling me for this kind of stuff. Well, Jesus, um, I don't know how he feels <laughs> about this wake up that he got in the middle of his nap Hardworking Messiah that he was, because he's going to get a little ambivalent about it. It's going to ask them whether or not they believe. And that's really remarkable. And that introduces us to moving along through the passage from the assumptions we have about being set for life to being overwhelmed by our circumstances. And now we're ready to see not just one miracle, but three miracles in this passage. And the very first miracle is the one that we've um, already seen. Jesus is doing something that is physically impossible. I defy you, no matter how tired you are, to sleep in a boat that's about to sink, that's that small, that's being tossed and filled with water in the area that you're sleeping. You know, Jesus was truly a man. He was hungry, he felt pain, he was thirsty, and he was asleep. In a boat, when Jesus performs a miracle, he's not doing it to show off, he's doing it to instruct us. He's doing it to teach us something about him and his purpose in our lives and what he's going to do. The very first miracle is the sleeping Savior. He was, like you and I, a man. And so when you see him asleep in the middle of this crisis... You and I are supposed to think not like the disciples thought who couldn't see the end of the story, but how the reader should think who sees the end of the story and understands that Jesus is telling us that the silence of God, the passivity of God, the sleepiness, if we can say of God, even though he doesn't slumber or sleep, that sleepiness is meant to refine and test us. It's a miracle as it were in this case, It's the first miracle Jesus used to give them special instruction. The second miracle is the miracle that gets all the press. The second miracle is this great moment where Jesus... um, You know, it's interesting that the ESV, every, every translation loves exclamation points. Like, I don't know. Eric maybe can help us. I don't see exclamation points in the Greek text. You know, Jesus might have yelled it, maybe did. I can't remember the formation of the Greek, but what if he just said, hey, be still? What if he whispered it? In whatever way, it really is not as important as the fact that he had the power to stop everything that disturbs you. Jesus has the power to calm every storm, everything that disturbs you, everything that bothers you, everything that hurts you, everything that threatens you your family, your children, your vocation, your career. Jesus could stand in your office or your home or your child's bedroom or the hospital room or wherever you are, and he could just say, make it right. Now, that's a miracle that sometimes he performs and sometimes he doesn't. But that's the miracle that gets all the press here and that it's calm. And interestingly, right after it's calm, what does he say? What does he say? Well, he looks at the people and he says, why were you afraid? Which is, a think about this with me. Get out of the Bible framework, okay? Pretend you're not a church. That's kind of a ridiculous question, right? Well, we were afraid because we were going to die. That's why we were afraid. We were afraid because when somebody you love has cancer and you don't want to lose them and watch them suffer, it makes perfect sense to be afraid. It makes perfect sense. Jesus is telling us that He has the power to change our world. That's the, that's the second miracle. <clears throat> but that miracle is really um, only serves up the third, and in, in fact, the first two just serve up the third. In our family, we're empty nesters now, except every once in a while in the summer, our youngest still lives with us, like he does now. And um, we've had a, a two earbud policy. In our home, I give you this for your own kids. Because we would walk up to them in high school and they would be in their room and we would want to talk to them and your kid's on a hold there, but don't let them do this. They would look at us from their computer screen and I would go. They would look at me. And then they would take one earbud out. You You ever have a kid do that? One earbud. I feed this kid and he's going to give me one ear. So we, we instituted both earbuds out policy. And um, that's what Jesus is doing here. By the sleeping and the storm calming, Jesus is getting the attention of the disciples for the most significant miracle, the most profound and important miracle that can happen with a disciple and his savior or her savior. And that's that the fear that they had, the fear that they had of the storm becomes the fear they have of the Savior. And in fact, I told you that uh, the word megastorm, the word mega was important because we find out later on in this passage that they were filled with great fear for Jesus, that what he had just done is the same word. The megastorm brought fear, but the calming of the storm transferred that fear. Now they were were no longer afraid of the storm, they were afraid of the person in their boat. They were no longer impressed with the violence and betrayal and wounds of their world or its death or dislocation or the end of friendships or the loss of jobs. Those things would all inflict real pain on their lives later and in our lives now, Those things are all to be reckoned with, but now this third miracle is that their eyes are opened to see who they're with. You know, discipleship, as we saw last week, um, unfolds in In cascading vistas, we learn things and then we think we know and we learn so much more we decide we didn't know anything beforehand. That's what 20 or 30 or 40 years of the Christian life should be like for you. And in this passage, it's compressed because what they find out early on is they they had special information about what he taught. And as they followed him, they learned more about who he was, right? Right? Jesus gave them special information. He he explained everything to them. They got things in their head. Now they understand who he is. They went from learning what to learning who, and that's a fundamentally important part of the course of discipleship, and it's the third miracle in this passage. The first is that he was asleep. The second is that he calmed the storm, and the third is that their eyes were opened, and they finally learned who to be afraid of and what to be afraid of. And it's very likely that at some season in your life, Jesus is going to lead you to that place where you must learn that He is a bigger deal than the things you want the most and the things that hurt the most, and those things are mostly the same. So He wants to be what He always is. He wants to be bigger. Than all of them. So now we're um, going to draw some lessons from this. First lesson is uh, that you are set for life, but not really the way you think you are. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That's a famous verse from the book of Romans, and it's true, and it doesn't mean that you're always going to be okay. It just doesn't mean that. It means when you're not okay, you haven't been separated from the love of God. He'll be with you. Also, we find out in this passage another important lesson. What wakes Jesus up? This is important. Because Jesus wasn't awakened by the storm. You know, just the fact of threat and sorrow and grief and loss, the world's covered with that. Jesus is attentive to that. He governs it. And in God's providence, it's, it's tamed and benevolent. But what wakes Jesus up is this frantic, urgent, desperate, kind of uh, offensive prayer. Honest, desperate prayer wakes up Jesus. Not, not churchy prayer, although he listens to churchy prayer. I big part of my life is making a living, offering up churchy prayers. I'm not against churchy prayers. I'm saying that Jesus loves the desperate, even accusational cries of his people, if they're honest. And that gets his attention. And In fact, that's likely something that he was after all along. So um, you're set for life, but not the way you think you are. You now know what wakes up Jesus. You also learn what you should be afraid of. Workmates, friends, cancer, divorce, singleness, childlessness. These are all things people get afraid of. I'm I'm afraid of many of those things. I'm afraid of a lot of stuff, actually. I should be more afraid of Jesus. Afraid in um, not just... In in that I love him because I think that it is important to understand that when God says you should fear him, he's not quite as finessed as you think he is. He actually means you should fear him. He actually means he's fearsome and loving. Remember, you know, remember the line from Narnia Chronicles: "Oh, who said anything about safe? He's not safe. He's good." Jesus, the bigger he is in your eyes, the more peace you will have. But that's related to the next thing. So, not only fear rightly, but trust rightly. And what are you to trust in? What are you to trust in? Well, we want to trust in the power of God to calm our storms. And I understand that. I I need to know that God can, when he wants to, and do what I need him to, to take away what's threatening me. But actually, the great challenge of the Christian life is not to trust that God is powerful. If you have any concept of God whatsoever, you probably would assume that he's pretty powerful. The challenge is to trust God's goodness when he's not doing anything especially. That's what they lost. They they found out Jesus was powerful. They were frantic because they didn't think he cared. Do you see the language there? You don't even care. So it's trusting God's care, trusting his love, not his power. If you believe in God, you believe he can pretty much do what he wants. It's what does he want to do? That's the question. Does he want to bless you or does he want to curse you? Does he care about you or does he not care about you? That's what you're to trust. That's the battle. That's the challenge. Two more things, and then I'll tell a story about a friend of mine. You also, you've also been told something important about Jesus' life. Why do you think Jesus wasn't afraid that he was going to die on the water that day? You learned something about Jesus' life that's going to help you with your life. Jesus' life was about redemption. Jesus knew he wasn't going to die in the boat. Do you know why? Because Jesus knew he was going to die on a cross. He knew that his hour had not yet come. He knew that all of the providence and all of the world and all of his life was set inexorably in the vortex of redemption right to the cross then to the grave and then resurrection and ascension he knew that and and what he says to us is that our life too is swept up into that vortex it is inexorably pointed to death and resurrection and ascension with christ that's what it means when god says All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, and nothing can separate you from the love of God. What you learn is to see the course of your life in the redemptive arc of God's love in the gift of his Son and your union with him. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's what Paul says in Colossians. That's how you're supposed to see your life. That's how you're supposed to see the turn of events where you lose your job or your marriage is dislocated or your child is sick or whatever the long list of worries, real worries and fears and pains there are in this room. See them that way. Jesus was asleep because He knew that He wasn't going to die there. Not that way, not that day. And so it is with you who are in Christ. The end of your story will not be the thing that you fear. It will not be the thing that hurts you. It will not be the one who betrayed you. It will not be. Just like Jesus' story wasn't going to, wasn't going to end there. So, in other words. Maybe this is the same as the last and not a final, but um, see life from the stern. See life from Christ's perspective of your life. Maybe just take this note down. Um, Jesus is not afraid of or does not believe your worries. That's a way to put it. Jesus doesn't believe your worries. See life from the stern. Let him have his way with you. So I told you I was tell a story about a friend of mine named Jeff. Jeff, um, I got called to the hospital to visit Jeff one afternoon, Saturday afternoon. And we went out there, and um, Jeff had just found out, father of five, the oldest at the time was probably 10 or 11, found out that he had leukemia. You know, one of those things where you're just a little sick and all of a sudden you have this horrible disease, you know, like he was fine the days before. And not only, not only did he have leukemia, but he had, to, he had to shut his business down. He shut his business down, like closed his business, as in no longer had one and no longer had a job, but still had a family, right? And that happened on, on Friday. And he was feeling a little bad. And then Saturdays in the hospital, and he's found out that he's got leukemia. He has to take this pill. It turns out months later, it's like, I don't know, $10,000 a month. I can't remember. But, so I asked him, I said, Jeff, how you doing? And he goes, I'm doing fine. Remember the story I told at the beginning of the, passage, of the message? <laughs> but I looked in Jeff's eyes and I, I thought, as a trained, cynical, reformed pastor, no, you're not. So I probed him for a while. Yes, he was. Yes, he was fine. That was five, six years ago. He's had his moments, but I'm telling you now, he's been fine. And I mean really fine. Like, fine because Jesus loves him. Fine. Fine because because God is asleep, but he's still with him. Fine because his children are going to be fine. Fine because his health will be fine. Fine fine, because all things work together for the good who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose, kind of fine. That's how He is. I mean, it's a thing. It can happen. It's what Jesus wants. That's why He told you to come follow Him. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your mercies. I ask You, please, to teach us these things. I need to Live them as well as preach them. And I know that there are people here facing trials and struggles who need the same. We ask you to teach us this in your good name. Amen. Got to get my head around this. Hold on. Let's pray, and I'll pray for the supper, and then we will stand and confess our faith with these words taken from the various passages in the New Testament. Gracious Heavenly Father, these things are um, common, but they are according to Christ's appointment.